Hey there, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the heat room. Dan Shapir. Hey, from Tel Aviv. I'm alive. Did you miss me? I did. Yeah. Steve Edwards. Yo, only one yo, not yo, 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 from cloudy and cool Portland. I'm Charles Max Wood from Top End Devs. Uh, we got a little bit of sprinkled rain. I think it's a little over freezing here, so it's cold. But yeah, great to be here. We have a special guest. Uh, that is Gal Wiseman. Hey guys, I, I didn't get I didn't get your pronunciation thing to load. So you you nailed it. Gal Wiseman is just, just about right. Uh, yeah, coming from Tel Aviv as well. Good deal. Yeah. So uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Let us know who you are and why it's exciting to talk to you. And then Dan can tell us why it's actually exciting to talk to you. Well, right now I'm the one who's excited to talk <laughs> to you guys, but um, my name is Gal. Um, I'm uh, doing JavaScript security for the past 10 years, I think. Um, started off doing that in 8200, which is the cybersecurity unit of the Israeli IDF. Um, I am kind of in love with JavaScript security, so I found myself doing that in startups that I worked for afterwards. Um, and I've been doing that for a while, and I'm doing JavaScript security in MetaMask today as well. So that's uh, pretty much about me. MetaMask is, is a company, right? Yeah, so MetaMask is a famous crypto wallet that belongs to a bigger company called Consensus. Um, and lately they have a really cool initiative called Lava Mode, and Lava Mode is a project that tries to, um, improve JavaScript security in terms of supply chain. So my project was kind of an interesting fit there. We're going to talk about it, I, I assume. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So the word security and and the other terms supply chain security have come a lot up a lot during your introduction so maybe you'll tell us a little bit about what they are and what you know what they mean in general and to you in particular yeah so i guess supply chain is a term that has been discussed a lot in the past few years but i think that we have this massive problem where um, in the past years, we're building web applications on top of different uh, on top of supply chain um, and different dependencies that we're relying on, and that could be kind of a big mess because it's really hard to me to understand what is going on within those dependencies, and they rely on different dependencies, and you end up um, building your web application, for example, out of ninety seven percent code that you don't really know and understand, and potentially it could be malicious and it could find itself executing within your web application. Um, so to me, that is uh, supply chain security, trying to identify that problem and find a way to um, protect against against it. Are you uh, referring mostly to stuff that we installed via, let's say, NPM? Or to just script tags that we, you know, embed inside our uh, web application to load third-party scripts, or both. What, 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 it, you know, what are you focusing on? Well, I think it really depends on the angle that you're coming from. But the security technology that I usually find myself working on is from like within the browser. 
So the answer to that would be all types of them, because to me, it's less about how malicious code found itself executing within any web application. It could be through npm install, it could be through a third-party script tag. My mission is to understand how I can protect the application in runtime against um, malicious entities, um, regardless of how they ended up running within my application. So one of the guests we've had on here before was Faraz Abukadije. He talked about his company, Socket, um, and you know their attempts to help make uh, NPM and you know dependencies and stuff safer and with security issues and stuff. I'm curious to see how, one, if you're familiar with that, I'm assuming you might be, and two, if you are, what's the difference between what you're doing and what Socket is doing? Yeah, I'm familiar with them in general, but maybe not enough. I'm pretty sure that their solution is not executing within the browser in runtime. My angle is usually about running um, from like within the application in runtime and identifying like sketchy things that might happen and then try to understand what I can do about them. Um, that is an angle that I I did before working in, in MetaMask and in MetaMask we're taking it to the next level in, in a lot of ways. But like I think that's the main difference between um, the approaches. Supply chain security is such a big problem that you have so many different projects and initiatives and like different projects and angles trying to approach this problem. Uh, by the way, just to mention that we also had uh, Liran Tal on our show from uh, Sneak, who they, and they are also uh, uh, their businesses are all about uh, supply chain security. So you know it's worthwhile to listening to the, to that show as well. So if I'm I'm understanding correctly what you're saying, then you're saying that you know these types of solutions, uh, uh, Socket and uh, Sneak, they kind of focus on on preventing your avoiding bringing in the malicious stuff uh, to begin with. You're kind of focusing on on the assumption that, you know, whatever I do, some malicious stuff may find its way in. And so I've got to try to mitigate that at runtime. Am I understanding this correctly? Yes, that is exactly it. It's about trying to under, trying to claim that it would be pretty hard to identify those breaches in w- when they happen and assume that maybe we'll miss some of them and try to defend the application in runtime instead of um, in the build process. So I looked at your project Snow, which I think is what we're primarily going to be talking about, right? Yeah. So my understanding from that was it's you load it before you load any other JavaScript and you load it as a plain old script tag so that it doesn't get screwed up by any of the bundlers or malicious software that might be tampering with the build system and that it uh, neuters the global object so that the, the let's use the term middleware, perhaps the middleware that you want to protect runs in place of the default. So the fetch that's provided is going to be your middleware fetch rather than the raw fetch. And you can remove things from the global object. Is that, did I get the right sense of it? You, you, that's the sense of it. I mean, I guess fetch is a, is a problematic example only because 
uh, fetch is not part of what I'm trying to defend. But but as an example, yes, that is that is the essence of it. The idea with Snow is to act as a JavaScript shim, um, and part of it is to hook and monkey patch different APIs within the within the browser in order to be able to uh, allow Snow's logic to apply within the execution. So why not fetch? Is that because we already have the content security policy that can whitelist? So the reason I'm not, uh, the reason Snow doesn't treat fetch is because fetch is not one of the problems that Snow has to deal with. So just to put things in context, Snow's job is to make sure that any new realm that comes to life within the, the application goes through Snow. And that is because uh, realms are actually k- kind of a security hazard in terms of supply chain. And that is something that we can also try to explain. Yeah, what's a realm? Okay, yeah, that's a great Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. All right, yeah, great question. I read fantasy novels. So I know what that means there. <laughs> so the context here is a little bit different than that. Um, but a realm is basically the execution environment and the set of APIs and the global object that you receive when you create a new execution environment. So for example, just to make it more clear, when I go on facebook.com, then Facebook runs within an entire realm called top. So the top window is a representation of that realm. And then within uh, Facebook, for example, I can create new iframes. So iframes have their own realm. They have their own execution environment. They have their own global object, they're meaning their own window, and they have their own set of APIs, which are different than the set of APIs of the top window. If I can... So uh, if I, I'm trying to think about it, it basically, if, it seems to me that what you're saying is that the realm is defined as all the uh, objects that I can get to via the global object, which I can always access. Yeah, that's... Like the global scope. The, the, root, the root object, like, you know, if I'm thinking about it from the perspective of, let's say, garbage collection, then you have kind of a root starting object that uh, through it can get to all sorts of things. And as long as you can get at something, it, it, it needs to continue to exist. It can it can be collected once you you can't get to it, so the uh, the realm kind of is defined by everything that you can get to by getting to the to the global object. I think it's now defined to be called something like global this, but most people who are using the browser are, are familiar with it as basically as the window object or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly and from right. The wo- Sorry. No, so from the window I can get like you said I can do window top or window document. And and all the various globals, I I know that JavaScript has some globals that don't exactly live on the window. They live kind of somewhere else, but they're also kind of global. So eff- effectively, everything that's global and everything that you can get to via global. Yeah. Now, it seems to me that what you're suggesting is is kind of well challenging because you know the the, the same thing that you said that that you know you work by monkey patching, that's possible because JavaScript is so amicable to monkey patching. It was intentionally designed this way. I mean, I think Brendan Eich, realized, when he created JavaScript, kind of realized that he's not going to be able to create this 
fully as a fully functional, completely specced and designed and implemented environment within the 10 days that he had. So he intentionally made it very monkey patchable so that it could be extended over time. And that's what enables polyfills and stuff like that. Everything that makes JavaScript be able to be backward, forward compatible and so forth. Uh, but, and, and that I'm, I understand from what you've said so far is also kind of what you leverage to create a secure realm. But at the same time, it seems to me that that, that kind of gets in the way of creating a secure realm since I can, like, well, effectively monkey patch everything. You know, like, I don't know, inject something into the prototype or I don't know, whatever. But again, maybe I'm kind of jumping the gun and let's get back to, to what you were explaining about realms. Oh, yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Um, I think that's actually a big part of the challenge in creating Snow. I mean, so Snow's job is to allow you to register a callback and Snow's job is to call that callback with every new realm that comes to life within the application before the creator of that realm has access to it. Um, so that means if any piece of code creates a, an iframe, for example, that Snow's job is to identify that and synchronously provide that new iframe's window to the register of the Snow callback before providing that window onto the creator of that window. Um, and achieving that is really complicated because of all the stuff you said. I need to make sure that I hook every possible way of creating an iframe. I need to make sure that I can do so synchronously, which is very complicated. And I need to make sure that every API that I use to accomplish that cannot be um, monkey patched by a different entity that executes afterwards. And that is really challenging, but so far seems to be possible. So, so what... You're not actually blocking things. You're you're creating a callback that allows me to know and then do what? Yeah, so that's the point about Snow. Snow's job is not to uh, apply its own security um, logic. The idea is to allow you to create your own security logic, your own security tool that you expect to run in a web page and use Snow to apply your logic not only to the top mainframe, but automatically to all the different um, realms that might come up in the application. So for example, let's say I have a security tool that simply blocks the access to local storage for scripts that are third-party scripts, just because I want to protect it in a certain way. Obviously, I can think of more complicated logic to implement, but let's stick to that for now. So I can use Snow to automatically apply that protection to all new realms that any piece of code might create within the application. And that is important because if, as an attacker, I want to gain access to local storage, even though your security tool, I can do so by just creating a new iframe and then accessing the local storage from within that iframe. Because your security mechanism is only applied to the top main realm. Snow allows you to take your security mechanism and automatically apply it to all new realms. And that is done by providing it with the callback. When you talk about iframes, are you talking about mostly about same origin iframe, different origin iframes, both? 
what's the focus here? Because, you know, it, iframes behave very differently if they're coming from the same origin or from a different origin. Yeah, that's an excellent question. That's a big part of, uh, of the project. So Snow's job is only around same origin uh, realms because the, the idea is that same origin realms are dangerous in the sense that anyone can just create new same origin frames and then use their APIs to bypass any security mechanism that apply to the top main frame. But if you have a cross-origin frame, then an attacker wouldn't be able to leverage it synchronously because you don't have access to cross-origin frames. That would be a security breach. So in the same sense, Snow only tries to protect same-origin frames, and Snow has a compli- like an advanced technique to understand whether the iframe that is just catched is same-origin and should be applied with the protection or cross the region and should be left alone. So basically what you're saying is that if it's a cross-origin iframe, then the cross-origin security policies that browsers have in place are effectively good enough from your perspective. Going back to your local uh, local storage example, they can read and write to the local storage, but they can't read and write to your local storage. So they can, you know, put whatever junk they want in their own local storage. You don't care about that. You want to prevent, like, somebody creating an iframe in order to get... So let going again, back to your local storage example. Let's say uh, I'm putting stuff... I'm, I want to put stuff which might... Uh, uh, which I kind of want to keep private in local storage. You know, we can debate whether it's a good idea or not. Mm-hmm. But let's say I'm let's say I'm doing that, and in order to prevent third-party code from getting at it, what you're saying, I'm overriding the local storage. I'm replacing it with my own shim, which let's say gets uh, an, a, an extra parameter, which is some sort of a security key or whatever. And without that security key, you can't read or write from that uh, local storage or or something like that. Um, let and and. What you're saying is that, um, uh, you know, if I, I want to make sure that somebody doesn't create an, an, a, an iframe with the same origin, and within that iframe, the local storage is not replaced because it lives on the window of that uh, iframe, not on the main window, which, like I said, I patched. Um, so I want to catch that and and do what? what? What do you see people usually doing? So I want to, that was exactly right. The idea is to do just that and apply the security mechanism that you just described for local storage. So you just, just described a, a mechanism that needs to get a key and only with that key you can have access. So I want to use Snow to automatically apply that to the iframes realm as well. So basically automatically monkey patch um, uh, that security mechanism with the with the local storage key to the window of the iframe as well. And then does that make sense? Yeah, I'm just thinking about whether it's possible to monkey patch 
uh, of, of a service like local storage in a way that makes it quote unquote secure to begin with, um, because it 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 feels almost to the extent that it, whatever data gets to the client side, I can't rely on it being like secure almost. Um, so it doesn't have to be. Um... It doesn't have to be local storage access. It could be any type of an example. So for example, one thing that we're trying to do in Lava Mode, which is a whole new project, but um, we're trying to actually make realms um, unusable. So the idea is to use Snow to catch every new iframe that might be created in the web app and then basically delete it or delete its properties or make its properties, like its global objects properties unusable by by deleting them or redefining them. Um, because we what we have the ability to protect the top main realm with the lava modes different techniques, which are basically out of scope here. But defending those realms and preventing an attacker from using the the APIs of those realms is a is a different task and we don't want anyone to create realms with our web application because there is no need to that so we can use snow to just um eliminate them basically and that's just one example you can use snow to basically just shape how how you want the realms to look like and, and if you want to apply uh, certain monkey patches or different um uh, APIs to your top main realm and you want every new realm to look the same, then you can use Snow to accomplish that. Yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my head around some of this. Um, so, first of all, just kind of uh, back up a little bit. So, if I create an iframe with the same domain origin that I have for my primary website or my main realm, um, I mean, how does that usually lead to some kind of compromise on the front end because I, I have to admit I don't use iframes at all I just it's just not you know um, I probably have some plugins on my website that do I think discuss the comments section right on top end devs it does that kind of thing but it's a cross domain thing right so we're not even talking about that but you know for my own development I just don't use them and so I'm, I'm trying to figure out um, where the security vulnerability is, right? It sounds like those realms have access to the same, you know, like you said, to the local storage, probably have access to the session data and things like that on the, on, on the, the, yeah, cookies, right? All that stuff could make uh, API calls to the back end and be authenticated through the cookie session, whatever, Um but and so I understand how it get, how that is compromised. But if it's the same domain um, iframe, is there some way for people to inject their own JavaScript into there, or how how are people compromising that realm? Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand the context of this um, security aspect. So what we're trying to defend here is the application from malicious code being executed there. Now, let's back it up before Snow. Um, you have today different security tools. Um, I know Perimeter X are developing such security tools, and you have Akamai, and you also have Lava Mode, which we're working on. And those different security tools are basically saying, so 
my application might execute malicious code and it might use network access and storage access and DOM access mm-hmm. to steal information from the web application. And I want to understand if I can stop them so I can implement different um, security mechanism with those tools um, to protect access to storage, to protect access to network, to monitor anything that goes to the network. And those security tools, um, they exist and they do different stuff and they're trying to protect that aspect. Now, what I'm trying to accomplish with Snow is basically tell those security tools hey, your security mechanism is an important mission to accomplish, but if you're trying to protect different APIs by monkey patching them, but you're not doing that automatically to iframes, that means that an attacker can ignore your security mechanism and ignore your monkey patches that are trying to protect the web application by simply going through the iframe instead of the top main realm. Allow Snow to automatically apply your security mechanism to all the different realms so an attacker wouldn't be able to create an iframe and bypass your mechanism. Uh, Chuck, I'll give you an example. I think it kind of relates to an example that uh, you, Gal, gave in one of uh, your your posts that you wrote about this. Think about this way. Let's say I have an iframe, a same domain iframe, and once it's the same domain iframe, you know, you don't need post message to communicate between the containing uh, window and the iframe. You can just call functions back and forth and pass objects directly between them because they're all executing in the same, you know, quote unquote thread. Um, and let's say I create an array within the iframe and I pass that a- or within, let's say, the global window and pass it into the iframe, into a function within the iframe. And within that iframe, I use is array to test whether this is an array or not. Do you know mm-hmm. what it will say? Is array will actually say that it is, I think. But if you look, you, if you use it to compare by, via uh, prototype, it will say that it isn't. Uh, mm-hmm. An array within the iframe and an array out from outside the iframe would have different uh, array prototypes. Okay. Uh, so. If you try to prevent certain operations being performed on an array by modifying the array prototype, that would take effect in the, let's say, your main window. But if malicious code running within your main window created an iframe behind your back, passed an array into that iframe, copy data, let's say, into an array created within that iframe, those protections that you put in place would not be there. Yeah. I'm kind of of struggling to think about what protections I can actually put, but I gather that's not really your problem, Gal. (laughs) You're just there. You're just there to prevent people creating these types of malicious iframes, or at the very least, to know that, that some code created such a malicious iframe trying to to you know maybe you like you said maybe you close it maybe you neuter it maybe you do something else with it but that's kind of not your problem as if i understand correctly well technically yes it is it is not my problem it is not it's, it is out of snow scope 
uh, scope, but it is definitely my problem in the sense of if there isn't any use for that, then there isn't any use for snow and then I'm working for nothing. Uh, so hopefully people will find it useful. Um, but to try to explain better, um, a little bit more what Dan just said, uh, Dan was referring to, the, to identity discontinuity. So um, I think the best example is, for example, if I create a new um, anchor element, and then, so you know you have instance of, so you can ask if, if that new anchor element is an instance of the HTML anchor element prototype, and the answer would be yes. But if you try to compare that anchor element to the prototype of the anchor element that comes from an iframe, then the answer would be no. That is because it is not an instance of the anchor prototype of the top main frame, it is an instance of the anchor element of, of an iframe. And that is not the same thing. And that is basically identity discontinuity. Um, so Snow's job is basically to, to make sure that if there is a security mechanism that you want to implement, no matter what, what it is, and there are actual examples today. So there are, for example, companies who are trying to monkey patch um, network uh, requests. And instead of using CSP to try to identify specific bits of the request or specific bits of the post message um, and try to understand if there's anything there that should be blocked or not. Um, and they accomplish that by monkey patching the top main frame. But as I said before, that is basically useless if you don't monkey patch those network APIs within the right. iframe as well. Can I ask one quick question here? We've been throwing around the term monkey patch. Has anybody defined it? Yeah, so monkey patching is the ability, as Dan said before, in JavaScript, you have the ability to um, override the behavior of functions. So for example, we have the alert function that comes from the window uh, object. So I can override alert to, instead of popping an alert message, to become a new function that console logs the content of the message instead of like popping the alert. So that's mm -hmm. like an example for monkey patching. But the, the point is that you're doing it at runtime as compared to say compile time, right? That's exactly right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it's the same mechanism that enables polyfills. You know, so you can, in JavaScript, I. I kind of refer to JavaScript as being the, the most dynamic of all dynamic languages and the browser environment to be like a reflection of that. So, for example, you can take any existing JavaScript object and add properties to it, remove properties from it, you know, replace properties. You can go to the prototype of the object and, and, and this way you can modify like a whole class of objects, you know, and, and, you know, and, and as we know, polyfills kind of depend on that. Also, you can go to the global object and, and add stuff there. Uh, it's, it's the, the, the JavaScript itself and the browser environment in general is, is very malleable. By the way, I, I recently learned something interesting that uh, Dino intentionally prevents certain modifications to the prototype chain. Like, uh, I think they, like, uh, block the underscore, underscore, proto, underscore, underscore property on objects. And, and you know, so that uh, people don't, 
don't intentionally abuse it. They see it as, as an attack vector. So they kind of decided to block it, uh, which is really interesting. Um, but, uh, but like I said, Brendan and I kind of intentionally made JavaScript very malleable. And that introduces certain security issues. Uh, although, again, you might argue that the, the, the client side is a vul- such a vulnerable environment in any event that, that any, you know, really important data that needs to be kept secure just need to be, needs to be kept on the server side and that's it. Yeah, I also think that you can, you can look at Snow not only, as a secure, like not only in the security aspect, but the idea is that you have the ability with Snow to shape all the new same origin realms in the page the way you want it. So for example, um, let's look at, look at it in a monitoring um, perspective rather than security. I do know that there are different monitoring tools that are trying to monitor uh, different errors or different um, network calls or stuff like that. And today, they cannot do so for same region realms. Now, there are web applications that create same region realms and they have actual activity in there, but there is no possible way for those monitoring tools to monitor the activity within those realms as well because they don't have snow. Um, so if I want to monitor with my, with my monitoring tool, network uh, calls and exceptions that might be thrown, I can do so within all same region realms automatically using snow. So that's also an example that is not security oriented to how snow is useful. Now you said that the way to embed snow within uh, my my website is basically put in a synchronous script tag at the very top of the HTML. It kind of blocks everything until it downloads. When it downloads, it runs. And then you kind of, like you said, you patch all the ways in which an iframe can be created. Are there ways to create same origin realms other than iframes, by the way? Yes. So you can achieve same origin realms via... Uh, embed object, um, sorry, embed element, object element. There is also the deprecated frame element that it still works and accomplishes the same thing. You can achieve the same realm or region by using the open API. So you have window.open that creates a new tab. And if that tab is same region, then you have synchronous access to it. Um, and there are just so many other examples. I also have to be able to patch the different ways, whether I use um, programmatic JavaScript to insert new realms, uh, aka create element and then append to body. But I also have to make sure I can do so for inner HTML because you can introduce the same region realms via iframes within inner HTML calls, um, which just goes to show how complicated this project is. And it's an open source project from what I understand. It's not a product uh, uh, provided by the company that you work at, or or is it? So right now it's an open source project uh, licensed as MIT. Um, Lava Mode, by the way, is the same story so far. We're trying to show that there are important security aspects that should be treated. Um, and we invite anyone to have a look, to build on top, and to just use it, basically. So how is Lava Mode different from Snow? What does it provide? So Lava Mode is kind of a whole different project, but 
the idea there is to um, so Lava Mode is a tool that allows you to build your web application using Lava Mode, and Lava Mode has its own policy that basically says which dependency can access what APIs in the web app. So, for example, if I have a web application that runs on top on top of a dependency that uh, creates network access using fetch. So Lava Mode would have within its policy uh, a directive that says this dependency can only access the fetch API. And that is, and then it builds itself with a protection mechanism that uses this um, policy to enforce it in execution uh, in runtime. So why is that actually useful? Because if that certain dependency gets um, breached by a third party entity that tries to implement access to, I don't know, cookies, for example, then the access would be blocked in real time just because the policy, the lava mode policy in real time doesn't reflect access to document.cookie. It only reflects access to network API. So that's what lava mode does. And it's a really interesting project as well, if that makes sense. So I wanted to ask about, well, if anybody else had anything to say about Love Mode. But I, I wanted to ask about diminishing returns and where the focus of security is best spent. Because there's a million things that can do. It gets really confusing. One of the terrible things is that people are told, oh, security's too hard, don't learn it. Um, and not everything that can be done should be done because there are some things like putting a deadbolt on your front and back door are going to eliminate 99% of threats if you use the deadbolt correctly, right? Then there's barring up your windows is going to reduce another 0.1% of threats. And then putting steel plates around your house is going to reduce another point zero 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 one percent uh putting up a fence around your house might give you a 10 percent advantage right so when you're looking at our web application and where the security needs to be what are your thoughts on where are you getting the 90 percent with the least amount of custom configuration or or highly specific application knowledge and then what works towards the diminishing returns of, you know, at, at some point you're doing something that's highly specific that doesn't really provide a lot of protection. So I don't know if I'd see it that way. I think that security is important when it comes to technology, security is important in most aspects. I think um, what SNCC is doing and the companies that are trying to secure um, against supply chain attack in build time is really important. But I think it was proven um, over and over that even though we have tools like Snake and tools that work in a build time, there are still ways to breach uh, the supply chain. And also, you might find um, web application execute malicious code um, that were not introduced as part of the supply chain. Um, so for example, third-party script tags can also be breached. Um, and you don't have a way to control that because it's not part of your supply chain. It's just embedded within your application. 
not to mention um, XSS attacks, which are less common today, but are also potentially a problem. Um, so I think runtime protection is important. I think there are multiple companies that are trying to solve that issue by creating advanced security tools. And I'm just trying to bring Snow to help those security tools to be complete. Because if you don't use your security mechanism on all potential realms, you might find yourself just as vulnerable as not um, running your security mechanism at all. That's that's, yeah, that's how I see it. I I I need to, I have to concur with that because I don't think the concept of of the diminishing return in the in the analogy that you used AJ kind of fits here because it, when when you're looking at the effort about you know breaking into a house it's not the same as the as as the concept of of breaking you know hacking into systems uh when, whenever uh you know when a zero day comes along you know, it it becomes so immensely uh, valuable and profitable that that and and everybody will gain access to that sooner or later because of the way in which uh, hacking tools are propagated. So so I I I I I I see it that the way that is that even if you leave like a one percent entry point into your system. Once people are, once that one percent is identified, it's as if you have no protection at all. So I, I don't totally agree with the concept of diminishing returns here. Well, so I for am... example, for example, if you don't include third-party scripts on the page through sources that you can't audit, right? You could eliminate. You, you make things part of your supply chain. So I, when you say third-party scripts, I think of things like Stripe, right? Which mm -hmm. Stripe is one of the few that I think are reasonable to trust, but there's no reason that you should be loading Stripe from Stripe's domain, the JavaScript for it, right? You could, you could download that and you could load it from your own domain and then you could eliminate Stripe as something that has third-party risk because you could say, well all the functionality of what Stripe needs to do is contained in this JavaScript file. If we host this JavaScript file from our own server, then we have eliminated the ability for Stripe to be compromised and for it to send us malicious code, which I think Stripe is a an unlikely example in this case. But if you've got some sort of stupid widget that, I don't know, automates dark mode or something, uh, you know, you, you could have these widgets that are third-party scripts that, if you just host them yourself so that you're not or or put them in your CDN, actually pay for a CDN that's that's a, a real CDN, not a not one of these fake buzzword type CDNs, but pay for a real CDN if you need it, or just you know host it off your server, bring those third-party dependencies, just download them. You know, you don't have, just download them. Then you've eliminated third-party scripts being modified without your being aware. That way, when you push to prod, that's the only time those scripts get modified unless the CDN becomes vulnerable, right? So there yeah, are things you can do that eliminate 99% yeah. of the risk. I think yeah, effectively there's a reason why that's not the case um, for forever, basically, because even though we understand the, the implications, we still see web applications being built that way for multiple reasons. One of them is that a third-party script sometimes uh, answers a certain service that you need in your web application, and yeah, you, you want can just download it. 
No, but like you, yeah, want, but you want the provider to be able to to update it without your. Yeah, I, I think that's the key thing. I think that most uh, most scripts pro- script third party script providers don't really want you to be downloading their script and running their script off of your own CDN or domain or whatever, because they want to be able to update that script. So if you're, we're looking at the majority of third-party scripts that come in not via NPM, but via script tags or stuff like that, you know, we're talking about various uh, pixels and marketing pixels and, and stuff like that. So all they, that's all the vulnerability, right? From... Okay, I yeah. want to pump the brakes here just for a second, because it feels like this is a huge tangent off of what we're actually talking about in the sense that yeah, in the broader discussion of supply chain vulnerabilities, I mean, some of these things, you know, matter, you know, and, and speaking to specific strategies makes sense. But what we're talking about here with Gal is, you know, what hit this specific approach and this specific opening that's caused by creating a realm through an iframe or something similar. And all of your other security tools, like the things that would do the audits during the build or do the audits in runtime, or things like that. Those are all things that we can pull in and uh, make sense for attacking supply chain vulnerabilities. But I'd like to go as deep as we can on this particular area of vulnerability and make sure that uh, our listeners understand it and understand how to mitigate it rather than going into, okay, you should have all these other things in place because I feel like we've covered those on other episodes. Okay. But my question is, you can't just say, oh, no, this is just as important as everything else. That's a cop out. You got to give me some sense of scale of, you know, if you're to prioritize, where does this fit in? It's got to have some sort of priority. Not everything is priority one. I I agree with you. But my point with this is um, this applies the... It's really distracting the delay in the video here. Uh, my point is, is if we're looking at this and we're thinking about, okay, you know, how do we bring this stuff in? What we're saying is this closes the door if you have the other pieces in place so that they can't be exploited across the other parts of your application. And, and so, yeah, this may not be the top priority, but once you have these other pieces in place, you know, you're closing the door to this particular type of end run around your security. I would add to that, or I would phrase it as following. If you have a system in place that supposedly adds a layer of protection at runtime, unless that system also uh, addresses the issue of of, uh, additional realms in the same domain, Mm -hmm. then it's done nothing. So basically the point is, Either you're not using such a solution at all because you're relying on whatever tests you're doing at build time. But if you have decided to also address uh, uh, supply chain security at runtime, then you have to factor in realms because you know that otherwise they'll be exploited. That, I think, is the basic, is the gist of the thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, Gal. Yeah, I agree completely. So one thing that I do want to add in here, because this also goes to the idea of when and how to implement this, is that sometimes there's a bit of a setup process, right? There's a real cost in time or effort 
to putting something like snow in. And sometimes it's relatively simple. Can you just walk us through that process so we can also evaluate not just, okay, you know, somebody might write their script such that it tries it on the main realm and then it tries to create its own realm, you know, to see if you've plugged that hole. Um, yeah. How much work is it to put this in so that they can't use the realm or they can't create their own realm and, and run you? Yeah. So, for example, if I want to eliminate access to realms completely using Snow, are you talking about, are you referring to the implementation of Snow or the usage yeah. of Snow? Usage. Like, how do I stick this on my page and know that it's, you know, to the extent that it's effective? And I'm assuming you've got most of the use cases, if not all of them, that are currently known covered. Mm-hmm. You know, what do I have to do to get that in my app? Yeah, so if you're the creator of the app, then what you'd have to do is to, as Dan said before, have like the script tag that brings Snow in uh, synchronously. And then in another script tag, you can just call the new callback that's set to window called Snow, and you pass Snow a callback, and that callback will be provided with every new window that comes to life. Um, So that is how you implement Snow. Um, If you're a third-party service that is creating security tools and wants to enhance your security mechanism using Snow, then you can also include Snow as a, as a dependency and then serve your mechanism, uh, your security tool with Snow within it um, and consume it just, uh, just the same. Um, and if you want to use Snow, then all you have to do is just call the callback and and provide it with a callback that will shape the new windows the way you want it. So for example, if I want to use Snow to eliminate all new realms because my web application should not allow realms, um, I can do so by getting that window, accessing its frame element, and detaching it from from the window, for example. but usually the best case for using Snow would not be by the web application. I expect the, the third-party security vendors to use Snow to apply their, their mechanism automatically to the realms using Snow. So the other question that this brings up for me then is, let's say that I install, I put Snow on my page, right? And then I pull in some security feature or function that also includes Snow. And I pull in a third one that also includes snow. Like, how, how does that stack up? Do I wind up with three instances of snow? Or does it sort of merge the configs from all of them? Or how, how does it figure that out? So being a shim, you can't really have multiple snows um, in your page because they eventually um, apply different monkey patches, as we mentioned before, and it makes sure they are non-configurable due to security reasons. So if you have another instance of Snow, you'll see a clash. Um, But making sure that there's only one instance of Snow in your self-maintained application should be be possible. Okay. Yeah. I'm just still kind of wrapping my head around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I include, let's say Sneak includes one, right? And they give me a script to put on my page or put into my build process. And then I want to use it as well. Yeah, I, I guess that's my concern is, do I have to kind of deduplicate it somehow? Or So if two different vendors want to use Snow, so one thing that could be done is to, I mean, eventually you have access to the callback and you can provide it with a callback. You can call that function multiple times. You can provide it with multiple callbacks and then 
snow would pass okay. the new window to the chain of callbacks. By the way, how big is snow? That's a good question. Uh, I'm not even sure, but it's really, it's pretty small. Um, I can check that real quick also. And like you said, it's an open source project. Are you working on this alone? Are there other contributors? Uh, I, I get one of the things that, uh, you know what, answer that before where I bring up the, the next point. Yeah, so currently I work on Snow almost um, all by myself. I have a couple of co-workers from MetaMask and Lava Mode Project who help me with uh, different um, parts of the, of the project. I also managed to get other security experts um, interested in the project, and they suggested uh, ways to bypass Snow, which was uh, excellent. It just showed how complicated the problem is to solve. Um, and a big part of the job was also to uh, address those issues and make sure that I can patch them and that Snow can um, address those issues and remain as secure as possible. But right now, uh, I work on Snow almost uh, only by myself. Are you looking for additional people to work with you on the project? Yeah, I would love any help. Um, I'm looking for help. I'm mainly looking for adoption. Um, and anyone who's just interested in the initiative and wants to pitch in in any way. By the way, we kind so, of mentioned it during our discussion at the beginning of the show, or I think we also talked about it, uh, you and I, before the show, uh, that uh, you kind of achieved uh, something of the holy grail of the open source maintainers <laughs> that you're right. that you're effectively being paid to work on your open source project. Is that correct? Well, to a certain extent, we came up with a small uh, agreement on when I joined uh, MetaMask and brought Snow with me because Snow was a project that I started off um, before MetaMask. Um, so. Coming along, working on lava mode, and bringing snow with me was uh, was part of that. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, you said if you want me, you got to also take my project along with me, or something along the like along those lines. Uh, to a certain extent, I think the uh, the tone was more about um, I love what you do in lava mode. I think that's a really interesting initiative, and I think that if you're looking to secure the supply chain um, for other people and for MetaMask as well. I think that Snow is a really interesting way to do that um, in just like a different layer. And we already found useful uh, example of how Snow is implemented with Lava Mode and helps Lava Mode ship its security mechanism to all different realms within the, within the application. So it's really cool to see how those uh, things um, combine. I think I just heard that it's story time. Is there somebody out there using Snow or Lava Mode or both that um, had some kind of measurable or noticeable effect? Um, that's a good question. I'm mostly on the research and development part at this point. I do know that, um, well, MetaMask, it, it, it is built within MetaMask, so that's uh, easier to, to implement. But MetaMask eventually is a really big project with like, I think, 30 something million users and both Lava Mode and Snow uh, protect MetaMask at this point. Um, so it's really hard to measure any attacks because we're not really reporting those attacks. We just make sure that they're not possible to begin with. Um, but 
We do know that once in a while you hear of uh, different dependencies that were breached and somehow managed to access um, different web applications. I think it never happened to MetaMask, but they were already so uh, into creating such a security tool just out of fear of being a company that might be exposed to that. Cool. Well, we've been going for about an hour. Um, Are there any other points that we need to bring up before we start? moving toward self-promo and picks? Um, yeah, I think another point is that, well, I guess, no, I think that's pretty much it. That was uh, that was about Snow. I think it's a cool project and I would love to see people either use it or maybe help out with it or, or at least uh, showing some interest. Um, I find it really interesting how difficult it is to push this forward. Um, but I love how that's part of the journey. So it's pretty fun. Yeah, I would like to make a point sense. about how coding relies on animals. Um, for instance, we talked about monkey patching. And if you think about rubber ducking, and I've heard the term duck punching, um, which to me seems rather violent. So I think it's important that we recognize coding's dependence on animals for illustrations. Camel casing? Camel casing, thank you very much. Duck, duck typing. Yep. yep. The duck seems to take the most abuse and praise as well. So it's sort of a two-edged yeah. sword, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and then they, anyway. Um, uh, Gal, if people want to connect with you either to volunteer to help or because they have questions or they want to uh, see where this could take them with the stuff they're working on, what's the best way to connect with you? Well, I am as reachable as possible, and I'm making sure to look um, out for um, messages. But Twitter is a good place at Wiseman Gal. Um, GitHub on Wiseman. Um, yeah, those you're not on Mastodon good. yet. That's a really good question. I am avoiding. There's another it. animal. That one's extinct. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might have to transfer there at some point. I'm just uh, trying to deny the whole situation, but like, might not be able well, to do it for long. No, you well, got to get Twitter I... blue. You got to support. You got to support free speech. <laughs> I, I, I'm basically, I'm basically straddling both worlds. I've, I'm basically, I'm using this tool that anything that I tweet gets tooted and. I've not yet gone the other way around, but I might do it as well. Uh, but that way, I, I just it's just have that I need to look at two places instead of one. But other than that, it's 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 okay. I can live with that. Um, yeah. By the way, how do people find the actual project, both uh, Snow and Lava Mode? Yeah, so they're both out under the organization Lava Mode. So if you go on github.com slash Lava Mode, you'll find all of them. Uh, I think How Lava do you spell Mode, that, by the way? Lava Mode. So you spell it um, Lava, L-A-V-A, and then Mode would be M-O-A-T. So just combine them and you get Lava Mode. Um, and when you go on the organization on GitHub, you get, I think the two pinned projects are Lava Mode and Snow. So you'll find both of them. Now, how does that work where you have lava and snow working against each other? Does lava yeah, use a... snow or vice versa? <laughs> Excellent question. Um, when we published one of the articles talking about how uh, I think it's really important to implement snow within lava mode, so we actually used Dolly to 
come up with a cool picture that combines snow and lava and also a fox because MetaMask's um, logo is a fox. And uh, after a couple of tries, it actually turned out pretty cool with like a fox watching like a volcano with lava and it's like a snowy um, view and it turned out pretty cool. So good work. Um, one sec. So we added a section of a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, where people get to self promote. They get to talk about the stuff that they're working on, and then we do our picks, which is the normal thing. Um, AJ, do you want to start us off with the self promo? What are you working on? What am I working on? I don't know right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that that. There are those weeks. All right. How about you, Dan? Anything you're working on you well, want to let people know about? Well, I'm a working stiff. So most of the job, most of the work that I do is just working for the man, uh, you know, doing, doing the day-to-day. Um, you know, part of my picks will be the conference that I uh, recently spoke at and uh, some and maybe mentioned some of the conferences that I'm about to speak at. So these are the things that they do all kind of outside my normal day-to-day. Uh, my normal day-to-day is mostly focusing about, uh, about performance, both on the front end and on the back end uh, at uh, Next Insurance, the company that I'm uh, working at. Uh, it's interesting because we use a variety of frameworks and a variety of, of uh, uh, services and platforms. So, you know, working across all of these and both on the front end and the back end can be really challenging. Uh, and uh, and yeah, those are the things that I'm currently working on. All right, good deal. How about you, Steve? Uh, I guess the closest thing I can think of from a public standpoint is a couple of uh, episodes we've done on Views on View, our other podcast lately, uh, where I talked to Adam Jar from View Mastery. Uh, cool. And the impetus was a course that I did for View Mastery, shameless plug, uh, called Nux Three Essentials. Uh, and uh, we just talked about View Mastery and uh, how they do their stuff, how they make their magic, because their videos are pretty different than most any other course that's out there. And then another one I did with one of my favorite guests, uh, Debbie O'Brien, uh, from the Nux community, and a new testing tool she has called Playwright. Looks. It's an end-to-end type. Oh, Playwright's famous. Yeah, it's really pretty sweet if you look at it and all the things that it can do. Some of the stuff it spins up uh, for you just right out of the box, Um, you know, generating some test stubs and things like that. So, yeah, those are some pretty cool episodes. I like those. So you can check out Views on View for those. I think we we said that we should bring you on the show once, uh, you know, uh, sometime in the future. Not as a host, but as a guest representing, representing View and the View community. Yeah, I don't know how much, how much I can represent the community as a whole, but yeah, I could certainly uh, talk about what I know and see. So, yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, I'm going to throw up a few things that I'm working on. Um, one of the things that I've been working on lately is just getting um, basically an RSS subscription via email through Active Campaign. Um, so, watch for a, an email form to show up on the website where you can go and you can get emailed when we put out a new episode. Um, the other thing that I'm working on, and this is a new podcast, is called Catapult Your Coding Career. Um, I have people ask me questions all the time about how to 
learn new things or figure out what's going on in the community or how to get unstuck, how to work with their boss, how to get a raise. Um, and so I'm just going to answer those questions. Um, it's not going to be as long form as this where we're talking for an hour or so. Um, I'm aiming for about 10, maybe 15 minutes at the outside. Um, probably going to do it multiple times a week. And yeah, just, just talk through those things. If you want a longer session with me, you can pick up a half hour session with me. Just go to topendevs.com slash coaching. Um, you do have to apply to one of the two coaching programs. But uh, from there, uh, we'll work that out. If you want to just slide a question in and you don't want to go the full coaching route, uh, Top End Devs membership, we try and make sure we have one or two um, Q&A calls every month. And so you can submit your questions ahead of time and then we'll make sure that we're, uh, you know, talking through that stuff. So, yeah, it, I mean, no guarantees on that one, right? If you're doing coaching, either group coaching or one-on-one -on -one coaching, you'll get your questions answered um, every time. If you get if you get on that, then it just kind of depends on who's submitting questions and how many we get. Um, but I'll try and get to as many people as I can. Uh, right now, those calls tend to be pretty open uh, just because the membership is new but I don't anticipate that it will always be that way. So anyway, uh, Gal, do you have anything else you're working on that you want to um, promote? Well, let people know about. Yeah. Um, so this is a project that I'm less working on at the moment because I had to focus on, uh, on snow basically, but there is a really cool technology that is built on top of snow that I created. Um, I call it a cross and to keep it short, Across allows two scripts within the same web application to exchange um, messages and communication uh, safely while um, knowing that the message that script A got from script B really came from script B. And that's something that is not possible to accomplish um, as of today. Um, it's an experimental project. It's pretty cool. And achieving that without snow is impossible because um, creating new realms and getting APIs from within it can assist an attacker to bypass across. So that's a really cool project that I love. But right now it's experimental and I'm not working on it just as much. But if anyone's interested, it's pretty cool and I would definitely check it out. Very cool. All right, we're going to do some picks. Um, Dan, you want to start us off with picks? Sure, why not? So, you know, as I kind of alluded at the beginning of, of the show, I was, if you haven't noticed, I've been away for a while. I haven't participated in the show for about a month. So if you were kind of wondering where I went, I went to Australia. And so my first pick is going to be Australia because it was, you know, just awesome. It's, it's a place that I think anybody, everybody should visit at least once. It's not easy to get there. Uh, so if and when you do get there, it's certainly worthwhile spending some time. People don't just realize how big Australia is. I think it's bigger than Europe. It's, it's almost as big as the U S I think. Uh, and, and it's, there like ton of space because there are only like 30 million people living in it or something along these lines. And, and a lot of them are concentrating like two or three big cities. So all the rest is kind of pretty empty. Uh, for example, there's the Northern Territories, and they say they have uh, more crocodiles than people, uh, and uh, and I wouldn't be, and I wouldn't be surprised. 
Um, that seems natural. And, <laughs> uh, it's funny. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that kind of surprised us, you know, uh, we live in Israel uh, and, uh, you know, next to the Mediterranean and we all like to go to the beach. And in Australia, in a lot of parts, you, you can't really, you know, you can go to the beach, but you can't enter the water because you'll die. Uh, because uh, the sharks will get you, and if the sharks don't, then the crocodiles will, and what probably will kill you, though, is a tiny jellyfish that's really, really venomous. Uh, so, so yeah. But uh, anyway, like uh, as I was saying, Australia is just beautiful and awesome. We visited several places there. We went to Tasmania, which was amazing. Uh, we saw, we you drove along the Great Ocean Road, which was amazing. Grampians and the Great Barrier Reef and whatnot. We really tried to see as much as we could within the one month that we were there. And like as I said, I highly recommend it. By the way, aside from the views being amazing, the people were great. They were just, you know, super friendly people. It made life a lot easier for us that they all speak English, uh, obviously. Uh, and uh, and they're just so nice, you know. Uh, you you just walk down the street and people will just say hello or good day, uh, and they mean it. They don't just say it, and uh, and they you know people just smile at you and and they're all so friendly and courteous and whatnot. So again, I highly recommend visiting there. Um, by the way, they're kind of moving towards a cash-free society. Uh, you know, there are places where you can you can't even pay with cash. You need to pay with a credit card. And it's to the extent that when you know you have uh, panhandlers on the street, they actually they get their money via an app or or something like that. You, you oh wow yeah you give them money from your phone uh, or like you know street uh, street artists as well. You know it's kind of it's kind of funny that way. Anyway, uh, so that would be my first pick. My second pick would be the reason that I originally went to Australia which was the Web Direction Summit Conference uh, uh, cre uh, created and run by John Alsop. It was an amazing conference. Um, it was a hybrid conference, which um, the unfortunate implication of that is that currently I don't think the talks are available to everybody. I don't know when they will be. Currently, they're only available to people who actually pay to watch them. Um, but uh, it was a great conference nonetheless. Uh, there were some like six tracks, a lot of talks, a lot of excellent content, a lot of great people, and I really enjoyed it a lot. It was in the beautiful city of Sydney. Uh, so that would be my, my second pick. If you get a chance to ever attend that conference or speak at that conference, I highly recommend it as well. Um, and uh, my third pick... Uh, when's the last time you've heard about the war in Ukraine? I'm betting that you haven't heard about it in a while. It's uh, probably nothing in the news. Unfortunately, that does not mean that it's over. In fact, it's uh, it's going on as much as it previously did. And, you know, Russians are still bombing civilian infrastructure and population centers and whatnot, and it's pretty horrible. So uh, that's uh, the pick that I will continue picking, even though you're not hearing about it in the news anymore, because everybody's moved on to something else. Uh, and, and, and I usually say anything that you can do to help the people there, uh, please do. And those would be my picks for today. So, Dan, while you were in Sydney, did you uh, 
you know, I know there's a lot, a lot of tourist attractions around and stuff. Did you go looking for that famous dentist office from Finding Nemo? You know, where they <laughs> held him in the fish tank and then he escaped. Uh, I've heard that's a real famous tourist attraction there. To be honest, I, I didn't even remember that Finding Nemo takes place there, although it's not surprising. Uh, so, no, we did not look for that. But uh, Sydney is pretty amazing. They have, obviously, the Opera House, but which is really famous. But they also have, like, a couple of amazing beaches, Bondi Beach and Manly Beach. And uh, they have an am amazing botanical gardens. And the city itself is just lovely. Uh, you know, it's not like the European cities where you go to see uh, buildings from hundreds of years ago. It's more like the U.S. in that regard. Everything, like the oldest buildings are 200 years old, uh, which which in Israel, by the way, basically means they were built yesterday. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, but uh, but still, it's it was it's it, it was really a lovely city and you know lovely people. As I said, I enjoyed it a lot. Nice. So Quora says that there's no way that that office could be located the way that it is. Just so you know, Steve. Oh. Um, in fact, why don't you give us your picks? Okay. So I actually have an actual pick before I get to the high point of every episode. It's an interesting article uh, from National Geographic. And, you know, a lot of us, I can speak for myself, and I've heard other people mention this, that, you know, as developers, a lot of times we're stuck on a problem and we'll go away and some people will purposely take walks or a lot of times you'll come up with uh, ideas or fixes or something when you're doing something like taking a shower. And so there's an interesting article on National Geographic called The Science of Why You Have Great Ideas in the Shower. And hmm. it talks about some research, recent research been on this. And the gist of it is that the idea is, is that you're going to come up with ideas when your mind isn't really trying to think of something. It's sort of a default relaxed mode. And therefore, your brain has the capability to wander and think about other things that you might not be thinking of when you're really trying to come up with a, with a solution. So. We'll put a link in the show notes, obviously, but sort of an interesting article. And it's one of those things that, you know, sort of confirms what a lot of people have known and practiced for a while. It's just sort of a confirmation and an explanation as to why. Uh, now for the, uh, the highlight, the dad jokes of the week. Dad jokes of the week. So <clears throat> uh, not too long ago, I entered the World Kleptomaniac uh, Championships. I took gold, silver, and bronze. There we go. A little delay on the drum joke there. Sorry. Um, my son, uh, he likes to watch TV and stuff, and he randomly turns in, actually turns into a DV, TV sometimes. So I got him admitted to the hospital. The doctors are currently watching him. And then uh, finally, uh, for the last few months, you know, Christmas uh, was, as of recording, is probably about two, three weeks ago. Um, my wife had been leaving jewelry catalogs all over the house. You know, I finally got the hint and I got her a magazine rack for Christmas. That, that was a good one. That must yeah, the last one was pretty good. good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Anyway, those are my picks. All right. AJ, what are your picks? Uh, so first of all is going to be the ubiquity dream machine. So I've now set up, Two of these things are actually a little bit annoying to set up because you kind of have to reboot them on the first time because they ship with the version of software that's older than the version of the app. And so the, 
The first time setup as of today is annoying because they just switched between version two and version three. Um, and but but once once it's set up, it's pretty amazing. Once you actually get logged in, it's pretty amazing. You can just plug in access points, ubiquity access points, and they just boom, they just work. Uh, you do have to you click adopt and you set the network name or whatever, but it's very simple. You plug in security cameras and they just work. Again, you just click on adapt and then there's just a couple of settings you can choose. Do I want it to record all the time or only when there's motion detected or only when there's persons detected or whatever. But uh, I think that Ubiquity is really doing a bang up job of providing higher quality products at lower prices that are pretty pretty easy to set up and use once once you got it updated out of the box to the latest version. Um, and I've, yeah, I, I set one up at my home as part of a security system. And then I found out about all the cool networking tools that it had, and I thought that was great. And then uh, because we need to meet certain compliance guidelines, we're isolating our network at uh, Savvy so that we are, because we we're in a shared co-working space. So our office is just one building that, and, and it's an old building. So the way the networking's done, everything's just really hodgepodge. And so in order to give us some, some isolation from the network, um, we put one of those in and, and it's great because now we have audit logs for what devices connect to the network and when and what websites they're visiting and all that, you know, good stuff that, that um, is both helpful and checks boxes on uh, if you have to deal with SOC 2 compliance and things like that. Uh, I'm also going to pick the Zoom H1N handy mic recorder because I still... As far as I can tell, there's nothing out there that is as good as the Zoom H1N in terms of versatility. It can work as a podcast mic. It can work for recording. It's got auto leveling, meaning that the gain, if if you're recording at a meetup or at a conference, maybe not a conference because that might be too big of a room, but if you're recording at a, at a meetup and you're speaking and then you pause and somebody asks a question, it will pick up the person asking the question Whereas most, I mean, every, everybody's watched a video where somebody in the back of the room asks a question and you can't hear what they asked. And then maybe the speaker forgets to repeat the question. And so you don't hear the question. You just hear the speaker answering the zoom H one in. It just, you know, if you, if you don't have a $10,000 sound setup, but you can afford 65 bucks, I just, and, and that's kind of the two options, you know, it's either you're going to go heavy into setup or you get a zoom H one in. And, and that, so I just, I'm thrilled with it. Um, every time I, I look in to see if there's something better, there isn't. I just wish they would put USB-C on it. So I quit having to carry around a USB micro cable. Um, but I love it. And uh, let's see, I think I had one other thing. Oh, I think I made mention of this before, but it finally arrived. There's this guy in Australia, speaking of Australia, who has taken these soldering irons that have become uh, somewhat popular. They're called T12s because they're relatively cheap and you can get a variety of them and they're actually really high quality. So they rival um, some of the other brands like, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the names, Hako and um, 
Well, I mean, they, they rival above that even. Anyway, this guy has created 3D printed fixtures with a little microcontroller. I think it's a, a blue pill, which is similar to the Raspi, Raspberry Pi Zero. I think it's based on the, the Raspberry Pi Zero slash blue pill architecture. So he's, he's 3D printed these boards, put a circuit board in there, a knob, a screen, and a plug. And you can attach it to a DeWalt battery, to a rigid battery. You can pick the one for the battery system that you have for your power tools. And it will heat up the iron in about six seconds to 300 degrees Celsius. Six, maybe seven seconds. It's, I mean, it's fast. And it's got all of, it's got, the software on the little chip has got all of the features of a professional two or $3,000 soldering station where it, it, it does temperature detect. If the temperature's not changing, it goes for so long, it goes into standby mode. If the temperature does change, then it starts heating up again. And for those that don't know, the reason the temperature would change when it's sitting still is if you touch a soldering iron to metal, the metal will wick away the heat from the soldering iron, causing the temperature of the tip of the soldering iron to drop. And these tips have temperature sensors. Well, they use the, the combination of metal they use ends up acting as a temperature sensor. And so they're able to anyway, it's just. You're getting a $2,000 soldering iron for a hundred bucks that is portable and heats up in six seconds to full working temperature. It's unbelievable. So I got one now. It's awesome. Cool. Uh, let me throw in a few picks of my own. Uh, the first one, I always do a board game or card game pick. Anyway, this is a game we got for my daughter a year or so ago for Christmas. Um, and then we got her the, um, I guess, the sequel game um this last year for christmas it's called sleeping queens um now sleeping queens came out in 2005 it is a card game it uh it's a game that uh yeah she can play she was six when we bought it and you know she she really likes winning uh which means she's my daughter for sure um anyway we uh Basically, it's a matching game, and you've got so you can use knights to slay dragons, dragons to steal queens, um, kings to wake up queens, and then you put together uh, math problems to trade out cards, and that's it. It has a weight on Board Game Geek of one point zero six. Um, this last year we got our Sleeping Queens two. It is new enough to where it does not have a Board Game Geek weight. Um, it's a little more complicated because you use the math problems now to um, so you use a pair of cards, I think, to wake up the queen, and then you use, uh, or wake up all of your queens, and then it has other things to put the queens to sleep or let you trade cards. Um, and the queens are trying to rescue the kings in this one is uh, Sleeping Queens to the rescue. And uh, the way you rescue a king is you get the queen and her animal companion, and you trade them in and wake up a king um anyway it's it's a fun game uh it's a little like i said a little more complicated than the sleeping queen so i would wait it probably a 1.2 1.3 it's still relatively easy to pick up um and she loves playing it the other kids i have teenagers you know they're they're usually game to play it it's not their favorite game but it's one that they like enough to play with her and so, um, yeah, Sleeping Queens and Sleeping Queens 2 are my picks for board games. Um, 
And like I said, they're they're terrific for kids. Um, it says eight plus, but my six year old picked it up no problem. So um, I'm going to pick those. Uh, as far as other picks go, uh, one thing that I started doing here this last week is I set up a Plex server. Um, and so now I'm importing music. I actually have CDs in my office that I am ripping onto the Plex server. And What are you uh, using to listen? So Plex has um, apps that you can install on your uh, Apple TV or your Amazon Fire Stick. Uh, you can get a desktop app for your computer. You can get a Plex app for your phone. Um, and the other thing is, is you can do port forwarding and hook it up so that you can connect to it from outside of your home network. I haven't done that yet, but um, it's. Uh, I had some issues getting it to run. I had a Linux machine that I set up. It's just an old PC. And the issue that I had was that it kept hanging when I try and do anything with it before I even got to installing Plex. But I have a Windows machine that's sitting under my desk that I don't do a ton with. And so I just installed it on there and it runs fine. Um, so yeah, so that's what we're doing. I haven't ripped the DVDs yet to it. Uh, probably just use Handbrake for that. Um, but yeah, um, I've been pretty happy with it so far. Like I said, I haven't heavily used it yet. But um, you just tell it what folders to watch. And it'll uh, index your music and stuff you can put photos on it um and so yeah i'm working through all that stuff um but yeah been been happy with it so far i turned it on i put the plex app on my apple tv downstairs and it worked like a charm so um the only issue i really have with it is that the plex app on my tv on my apple tv it so plex they they uh prompt you periodically to get a paid subscription you don't need it but they want you to have it and they have a bunch of content that's on there for free and so i'm trying to figure out how to turn parental controls on on it um and that's really the only rub that i've gotten so far so if if you can do that and you know how to do that i would love to hear from you um you know both for some of the stuff that we have on dvd or blu-ray and um i've got yeah, it's, parental controls on mine Okay, I just need to figure it out it, then. But yeah, it's just a separate so, account. You create a separate oh, account, okay. and you, and then you select. Uh, there's two ways you can do it. One, you can select folders and only put folders that are for kids or movies that are for mm -hmm. kids in the kids folder, and you can just add that folder to the account. The other thing that you can do, there's also a PG rating system of you know older kids, younger kids kind of thing. But I that, gotcha. you know, it, it works as well as it works. Right. But yeah, so I've been happy with that. Um, let's see. My wife and I just finished watching Blacklist, the latest season of that. And we enjoyed that. That was pretty good. Um, there was something else I was going to pick, and I am totally drawing a blank on it. So I will just pick it later. But yeah. Um, Gal, what are your picks? Well, I think I only have one pick. Speaking of um, TV shows, uh, there's Severance on Apple. I don't know if you guys had the opportunity to watch it, but it is an excellent show. Uh, we watched it here, and I had a really good time. It's about, so obviously not having any spoilers, but um, it's about people who chose to 
participate in a program where they separate their consciousness to when they are outside of work and when they are in work. Um, so they're basically two different people that are not aware of each other when they're in work or not. Um, and that is a really interesting idea and the plot is like super interesting and it finishes in a way where you're just wishing to see the next season. Um, one of the best shows I got to watch in the past few years, I think. So Severance would be my single pick for today. Awesome. All right. Well, um, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this. Until next time, folks, Max out. <laughs>